Matthew chapter 1. Sweet. Well, it's always fun to start a new series. I always like this. always enjoy introducing new books. And um, the Gospel of Matthew is certainly one that's interesting in its place in the Scriptures. Of course, it bridges uh, New Testament and Old Testament, old and new. And if you took your Bible and you just removed Matthew from its place, just put it somewhere else or took it out altogether, and you just went from the book of Malachi straight into the book of Mark, and Matthew wasn't there in the middle, the whole New Testament would actually be quite confusing. You'd think, how did we get here? Uh, How did we get here in regards to this fellow Jesus? And so Matthew ties together for us Old Covenant and New Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament. And one of the ways that Matthew... Uh, ties old and new together is this, is that 129 times, get this, 129 times, he will reference or he will allude to the Old Testament. And several times, uh, something like close to 15 times, he will specifically say things like, this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then he will quote the prophet and say, who spoke that word. And so, You know, I guess the question for us, I mean, obviously, Matthew is tying old and new together, but part of the question is, is why was he doing that? Why is he constantly drawing on the Old Testament to teach us about Jesus? And the answer is this, is the audience to whom Matthew was writing as he wrote this gospel. Uh... And the answer is this, is that Matthew was writing specific, or primarily, not exclusively, but he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And that happens to be one of the various um, features of the different Gospels, is their audience. Matthew was written to Jews. The Gospel of Mark, it's a short Gospel, it's 16 chapters long, it's full of lots of narrative, narrative was written to Romans. Uh, the Gospel of Luke was written to Greeks and they have their different emphasis and the gospel of John was written for the entire world. Now Matthew was uh, written for a Jewish audience and so as he tells the story of Jesus, he addresses questions and issues that would come up for a Jewish audience and that's why he makes so many Old Testament references and as I was thinking about it, you know, I just have to smile at the irony of God when I come to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The irony of God's work, because only God would use Matthew to write a Gospel to Jews, to a Jewish people. Uh, Recall for a moment where Matthew came from and what his history was. He was one of the 12. We know that uh, prior to being called Matthew, he was called by the name Levi. That was his birth name. And he was a Jew, but... Levi was a man who had sold out his culture. He had sold out his people. He had sold out his religious identity to line his wallet with money, with uh, the, the profits of Roman taxation. It worked this way. Rome would have its districts and its areas of taxation within the empire, and they would recruit an individual in that area, and they would serve as a tax collector, And they would collect the allotted amount that the Roman government had set to be collected. And then whatever they could collect beyond what Rome had set was their salary. And the way that they lined their pockets and made their money. And so Levi was a man who had sold out his people for money. He had turned his back on his cultural identity. Um, In the handling of Roman coins and dollars, he had... Uh, turned his back on his religion. He turned his back on his family, I would say. He had turned his back on his friends. In fact, being a tax collector made Levi permanently unclean in regards to uh, Jewish law. I imagine, I mean, the scriptures don't tell us, but I would make a strong bet that Levi had been expelled from the synagogue and was not able to come and worship there. He was a sellout. His only Jewish friends would have been other tax collectors and harlots. And he would have hung out with Gentiles, which would make him an unclean man, religiously unclean. And so in the mind of his own people, Matthew was not much beyond scum on the bottom of your shoe. 
And so here he is, a Jewish man who sold out, and yet when Jesus came to Levi and met him on that road as he worked at his tax booth, and Jesus gave him the call, follow me. Levi left everything to follow Jesus. You remember that in the account of him leaving to follow Jesus, that 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 day or around that time period, he threw a great uh, feast at his house, and he invited all of the tax collectors, the scripture says, and the harlots to come to his house, where they would have a feast with Jesus. And Jesus sat amongst these unclean individuals and ate dinner with them. And when the Pharisees looked on the whole scene, they were totally offended that Jesus would eat with such people. And it was Jesus who said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And so Levi was a man transformed by meeting Jesus. And we know he went on to be called Matthew. When we think of him as Matthew, and you go through the gospel accounts, there's actually not one word ever recorded that he spoke. We don't hear much about him. He's just listed in terms of the 12. But the Holy Spirit, in his humor, in the irony of God's work, commissioned Matthew to write a gospel uh, to the Jews. And so everything we know that Matthew had to say, he did with a pen. And so as a tax collector... He does so here with really good uh, precision. And one of the things uh, that you'll see about the Gospel of Matthew as you become familiar with it is this, is that it's actually not written in chronological order. If you, if you take it and you compare it to some of the other Gospels, you go, what's, what's the stream here? What's going on? And Matthew is actually a Gospel that is written and it's broken up into five sections. And we'll see these uh, more in weeks to come where... Each of the sections consists of the telling of a narrative, a story, an account of Jesus. And then Jesus will teach. And then some people will will reject Jesus and some people will accept Jesus. They'll receive him. And so Matthew, everything he ever had to say, he said with a pen. And he said it to Jewish people to whom he had once sold out. And so in writing to Jews... Matthew was writing to a nation that held very strongly to the hope of the Messiah. We, we even heard that in some of the readings this morning. Andy's reading struck me from Psalm 80. The hope of the Messiah. The, the hope that the children of Israel had. They were looking for a deliverer. They were looking for their coming king. In the past, when they had endured times of oppression and suppression... God had sent deliverers. We see that throughout their history at at different times. And if there's one time that stands out the most to us, it has to be the account of their slavery in the land of Egypt. And God raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel. He raised up Moses. And Moses had a miraculous birth story. He was preserved in a basket floating on on the Nile River. Raised in the palace of Pharaoh, a deliverer for God's people who would lead them out of the land of slavery and into the land of promise. And Moses left the children of, the, of Israel with this expectation. There will be one who will come in my pattern, come in a way similar to me. And so the hope of the Messiah uh, gripped the nation, the people of Israel. The prophecies that surrounded the coming of the Messiah, the the various prophets all throughout uh, the Old Testament spoke of the coming of God's anointed, his anointed one. And so the children of Israel as a people carried this messianic hope and expectation. They were waiting for the coming of their king. A king who would put an, an end to oppression would put an end to the oppression of Israel and lead them to a return to the glory days of David and Solomon. And so Matthew, very specifically as he speaks to to Jewish people, goes about telling them of their king, of his kingdom, of the economy of the kingdom, of the structure of the kingdom, of the way that the kingdom operates. In fact, in this gospel, he mentions the kingdom of heaven over 30 times. He is teaching the Jewish people and teaching us that Jesus is the king 
of heaven, the expected king. But as he teaches about the nature of the kingdom, it's not just the kingdom, it's not just about the kingdom of Israel. This is about the kingdom of heaven. And so as we come to Matthew here, Matthew chapter 1, the story starts where the story of every king starts, at his birth. So we begin at verse 1. Let's check it out. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew starts and he says this about Jesus. He is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, both racially and royally. He says he is the son of David. You recall that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, it's the story is recorded that David had it in his heart. Once the Lord had established his kingdom and he had established the, the throne of Israel in the city of Jerusalem, it came upon the heart of David that he would build for God a house of worship, a house for the, the presence of God to dwell, a, a place where the priest could work, a place where the Ark of the Covenant would sit and the people of Israel would come and they would gather and they would worship God as their king. And so the prophet said to David, you have it in your heart to do this, go ahead and do it. But that night the prophet Nathan went away and the scripture tells us that the Lord spoke to him and said, David is not the man to build my temple. And so Nathan came back to David and he said, David, you're a man of war. There's blood on your hands. You're not the one to build the temple. Your son will build the temple. And we know the story that David went about putting everything in place so that when Solomon came to the throne, Solomon could build the house for the Lord. But something amazing happens in that story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's this, that the Lord said to David, since you had it in your heart, through the prophet Nathan, since you had it in your heart to do this for me, I won't have you build me a house, but rather... I'll build a house for you. And one of your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever as their eternal king. And so the Christ, the messianic expectation of the people of Israel was that the Messiah must be born a son of David. That's him royally. Racially, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Do you remember Genesis chapter 22? That crazy story of the account of Abraham taking his son Isaac to Mount Moriah where Isaac would be offered as a burnt sacrifice on the mountain. Abraham, in obedience to the Lord, took Isaac to that place to sacrifice him. And when Isaac asked the question, you know, he didn't know what was going. He said, Dad, where's the, where's the sacrifice? Abraham spoke those words of faith the Lord will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And when the Lord rescued Isaac, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. It's Mount Moriah. It's the place where Jesus Christ was crucified. Uh, the Lord himself will provide a lamb for a burnt offering. Jehovah Jireh, God, our provider. And on that mountain, Isaac and Abraham, the Lord said to Abraham on that day, because you have not withheld your son from me, you have not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you obeyed my voice. And so Matthew tells us here, Jesus is of the offspring of Abraham. He is the son of David, royally. He is the son of Abraham, racially. And so Matthew introduces us to the, it's interesting, he says the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Now don't make the mistake of thinking this is the full extent of Jesus' genealogy. The story is still being written. The family is still growing. Uh, you know, we were born into the genealogy of Adam. Really, the Bible tells the stories of two genealogies. In Genesis chapter 5, it says, this is the genealogy of Adam, and it goes through. 
until we come to the New Testament and then it's introduced, this is the genealogy of Jesus. A new family and we've been born again into the genealogy of King Jesus. Born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you know, when I look at this genealogy, genealogies, you gotta love them in the Bible, right? Uh, I look at the names here, though, and you could spend a month of Sundays just going through this genealogy. So we're gonna, you know, do that. No, just kidding. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to skip through it. But rather than try to uncover every treasure that's in here, and there's a lot of treasures if you take the time to dig in that genealogy. If there's one genealogy in the scripture that's worth digging in, this is the one. But I'll point out some of the highlights as we go through it, and I'm actually going to read it. Okay, so let's let's do it. We'll bite off some chunks. Verse two. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Now you notice that Salmon wasn't a king, but only fishermen will get that joke. And Salmon, the fa- and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Genealogy is extremely important to the Jewish people. Matthew had to start here to establish the fact that Jesus Christ is king. It was through your genealogy that you... Uh, we're able to identify your tribal background, that you could say, I'm of this line, I'm of this family. It was through your genealogy that family names were maintained. It was through your genealogy that family property was passed down from father to children to children to generation to generation. It was through your genealogy that your inheritance was passed down. When the children of Israel were exiled into the land of Babylon and they eventually returned after 70 years and they began to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. You may recall that in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, there were Levites who were uh, wanting to work as priests, but they were not able to uh, produce their genealogies. They were lost or destroyed in the midst of the exile. And so uh, because they could not prove their tribal ancestry, because they could not produce the paper that said, we're of the line of Levi, they were actually excluded uh, from the temple worship practices. The genealogy was totally important. And what's interesting is that, you know, in a culture, uh, theirs was one that was male-dominated. We know that. Dominated by men. Women were not counted in the genealogies. In fact, you know, in the Old Testament, at least there's one place that I, I could think of where uh, women were mentioned. It was a spot where there was a man who had five daughters and no sons. And when their father passed away, the, the daughters went to the, the elders and they asked, hey, we don't want our dad's name to disappear from the genealogies. Can the inheritance be passed through us to our children? And there was room made for that. But uh, typically, you know, uh, it was... In this male-dominated culture, just the men that were listed, and you know, it was in in Jewish culture. Actually, a common prayer of a man was this, and, and I've told you this before. It's pretty shocking, but you know, you'd stand before God and you would say, "I thank you that you didn't make me a dog, you didn't make me a Gentile, and you didn't make me a woman." And, and I tell you that just to illustrate how male-dominated they were as a culture, and. I also tell you that to point out the uniqueness of what we read here in regards to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because as I read over those names, we passed over the names of three women. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Tamar's story is told in Genesis chapter 38. It's a shocking one. You should go home and and read it in your Bible. I'm not going to recount it. It's a twisted story. And we don't have time this morning, but... But Tamar had sexual relations with her father-in-law and she bore children by her father-in-law. 
then there's Rahab. She's listed. Rahab was a Canaanite, a woman who lived in the city of Jericho, and we know that she was a woman of the night. She, she earned her living as a harlot. Then, of course, there's Ruth. Her story isn't so scandalous, but she's a Moabite. She's a descendant of Moab, uh, a people whom the Lord said this of them. They're my wash basin, man. That's where I do my business in, in Moab. That's the, that's a, that place is nothing more than a toilet, the Lord said. And the Lord said, if a Moabite becomes, comes into the, the children of Israel and assimilates in, they're excluded for 10 generations for being able to come into my presence, to come to the temple to worship. And so Ruth was a, was a, a Gentile who God had sworn as his enemies in a sense. And so not only are women recorded in, in Jesus' genealogy, but in a, in a culture that, you know, valued its racial purity, in a, in a culture that valued its racial integrity and that sense of superiority, there's scandal. In a culture that placed great value on sexual purity, this is a scandalous history, a scandalous genealogy. Check it out. Let's keep going. Verse 6 continues. It says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah isn't mentioned by name, but we know who that is, right? Bathsheba. And we know that story. And it's interesting, she's not mentioned by name, I, I think because it, 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 you know, Matthew is putting the emphasis on the fact that, that this was David's sin. This was the story of David's sin. He, he took a, a married uh, woman, and while her husband was away, he had an affair with her, and, and she got pregnant, and then David had her husband killed. I mean, he committed adultery, and he committed murder. And as Matthew goes through this genealogy and starts to tell the story of this, this great king to a people who were proud of their history, who were proud of their great king David... These reminders of scandal, these reminders of the skeletons in the closet must have been painful to hear. But it was an indicator, I would say this, it was an indicator that the Holy Spirit was trying to shake the Jews out of spiritual complacency and alert them to the fact that the Messiah had come. You know, you read the names of these women in this genealogy and, and, it, and it should alert us to this fact that, that God was setting the stage to do a new work. His kingdom is the kingdom of heaven and, and not the nation of Israel. This is something that is entirely new that Matthew is going to introduce us to. As Jesus said, behold, I make all things new. And personally, as you know, we go through this list of people and we see these names in here, I, I think we should be reminded ne never to say with our lips, you know, God can't use me. Uh, my past is too damaged. Uh, I, I've been too corrupted. I, I've sinned too greatly. God, God can't use me. I shirked my family responsibilities, you know. I messed up my family. I did this. I did that. And you know, I, I think about this list, we're gonna, it's going to go on here, and we're, we're not going to dive into it too much here, but we're going to see, you know, one father who's righteous, and a son who's unrighteous. One king who honors God, and one king who couldn't have been more wicked. And this genealogy tells me that, that God does not have grandchildren. He has sons. He has daughters, and each man and woman will, will stand before God Almighty, and they will answer for their own sin. This genealogy, as we go through it, tells me this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus brings Rahab into his family. Jesus includes Ruth. Jesus includes Tamar. Jesus forgave and restored David. Jesus, as we see in the Gospels, was the friend of sinners. And you can have past failures. 
30 years ago, I don't know, three minutes ago, your morals could be questionable. Maybe you don't have much theological understanding. Maybe you haven't been Christianized. You know, maybe you don't know the routines of church. As you read this genealogy, I said, so what? Ruth said to Naomi, she said, your God will be my God. Your people, my people. I'm going to start traveling with you. I'm going to start worshiping with the people of God and, and worshiping the God that you serve. And your God will be my God. And whatever your past, when you make the decision to travel with Jesus, to make Jesus the affection of your worship, he forgives the past and he redeems the future. And this genealogy should tell us that. Jesus forgives my past and he'll redeem my future and he'll take it and make it something for the glory of his name. The names go on. Verse 7. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. I'm going to stumble over half of these, I'm sure. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. We know Ahaz was wicked, wicked king. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, who was a godly king, who served God, who experienced miracles, a man whom God added, uh, was it 10 years to his life? celebrated with such glory and magnitude amongst the the children of Israel as the one that he led. Verse 11. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiad. And Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, verse 16. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You know, notice the pattern here as we go through. The father of, the father of, the father of, until we get to Joseph. And then Matthew does not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. He says that Joseph was the husband of Mary. Mary, the child that was conceived in Mary, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so as we read this, this is... Uh, Joseph's family line. Uh, he was the adopted father of Jesus. Luke chapter 3 actually tells us Mary's genealogy and that line, which also goes back to King David through his son Nathan. This one goes through his son Solomon. And, uh, and so here's Joseph, the foster father of Jesus. Verse 17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, if you dig into this genealogy and you spend some time looking into it, what you'll find is is that there are actually names omitted. Matthew has clearly left out uh, certain names in this genealogy, but he packages it up into something that is kind of, memorable and that you can keep in mind there's 14 from Abraham to David 14 from uh, David to the deportation and from the deportation to Jesus uh, another 14 generations 
Something that struck me just in studying this passage was the fact that Matthew mentions the deportation to Babylon four times. Did you notice that he kept saying that in that section of text? You recall that due to their disobedience and rebellion against the Lord, the children of Israel had been exiled to the nation of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had come. And he had destroyed the city of Jerusalem. The temple had been destroyed. And the people, the children of Israel, were taken off into the land of Babylon for 70 years of captivity. And after 70 years in exile, the Jews began to return. They began to rebuild the city. They began to rebuild the temple. But never again were they an independent nation. The exile to Babylon ended the rule of their kings. Uh, Rather than being independent and autonomous as a people, they were ruled by various kingdoms. They were oppressed. The Egyptians, the Greeks, the the different uh, nations that rose rose and fell during those times. And at the time of Jesus' birth, the children of Israel had been ruled by the nation of Rome for more than 60 years. They were oppressed. They were suppressed. In fact, from the time of the return from the deportation to Babylon until Jesus was born was a period of 400 years. Paralleling the 400 years of slavery in the land of Egypt. In Egypt, they had suffered slavery, but coming back from the deportation to Babylon, they had suffered silence. God had not spoken. There was no prophet. There was no king. There was no word from the Lord. Though the temple was established, though they worshipped and they offered sacrifices, the heavens were silent for 400 years. And I think the reason why Matthew mentions the deportation so many times is to remind his Jewish audience of the oppression they were under, the the suppression, the, the 400 years of silence. To remind the Jewish people that when they thought about it, when their heart began to think away about the way that they had just been oppressed by these other nations, that they would remind themselves of the promises of the prophets, that they would remind themselves of the promises of the word of God, that they would think about the things that were promised to them like words that Jeremiah spoke in Lamentations chapter 3 like this. The Lord is my portion, says this, my soul. You know, the heavens are quiet and I don't know what's going on, but I remind myself from the word of God. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of God. And as as Matthew is saying, remember, you were... You came back from the deportation and you're waiting. The heavens are silent, but it's good to wait for God. His salvation is coming. His salvation is coming. And Matthew was pricking the heart of the Jew and reminding them of their hope. The hope that the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed king would come. And Matthew is telling the Jew, and he's telling you and I as he writes these things, this is the king who is going to bring freedom. This is the king who is going to bring freedom. And so this genealogy tells us that there is something unique about this king. I think of redemption as I think of this, these names that we read. This is the one who redeems his people from their past. He brings freedom when they come to him. Now the story of every king begins with his birth, but the genealogy is so important. You know that in all the history of the world, 
Jesus is the only person that has a genealogy recorded that identifies him racially and royally to the throne of Israel. There is no one else in the history and there never will be. And here's the reason why. In AD 70, when the Romans came and they laid siege to the Temple Mount and they laid siege to uh, the palace, they destroyed everything. Herod, history actually says this, that Herod had been on a rampage and he was going after genealogies and he was destroying them earlier because he didn't want anyone to take the throne from him. And so all of the Jewish genealogy were destroyed uh, by 70 AD. And so here we have the only Jewish genealogy who identifies for us the man who racially and royally has the right to the throne of Israel, and it's King Jesus. Every story begins with his birth. Let's check it out, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew is very specific. You see how specific he is there at verse 18? He says, this is how it took place. This is how it is. I'm stating for you facts. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but likely maybe their marriage was uh, arranged by their parents from the time they were little children in that town of Nazareth. Um, in their culture and in their tradition as a people, it, it worked this way, that one year prior to the consummation of the marriage and them living in a home as husband and wife under one roof, they would enter this period of betrothal where legally they were considered husband and wife. Uh, but they continued to live apart. Maybe Joseph in his own home, Mary in the house of her parents, and they lived apart, and they did not consummate their marriage, and they went, underwent this year of preparation for marriage. But it was during that time where if one, you know, for one reason or another, they said, man, I, I can't live with that person, then they would end it during that time. And Mary was probably something like 15 years old. So young, eh? Verse 19 says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame and resolved, her, resolved to divorce her quietly. You know, we think about this Christmas narrative, the birth of Jesus Christ. Mary is an amazing woman, a godly woman, unique in the history of the world, chosen to bear in her womb the Savior of the world. And I think in some ways, as, Protest, as a Protestant church, we, we react to what we see in the Catholic church where there's an overemphasis on Mary, and sometimes we underemphasize to the other extreme. Mary was very unique in the history of the world, a virgin who conceived a child by the Holy Spirit. God chose her to, uh, chose her womb to bear the Savior of the world. And so to Joseph, you know, if I think if there's a, a character who gets lost in the, the birth account of our Savior, it, it might be Joseph. And obviously, he was a man of godly character. Not only was Mary chosen to carry the Savior in her womb, but Joseph was chosen as a foster father, the adopted father. And clearly, he was a man of of godly uh, character, for we see the way that he reacted to the word that Mary had conceived the child. Right, conceived by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we all know that's where babies come from, right? I mean, you just have to get into Joseph's uh, mind for a moment to think about how crazy he must have been going in his head. This woman's been promised to him. He's in love with her. They're betrothed to marry one another. Uh, he's a man who, who loved his wife and wanted to honor God. But you've got to think, conceived by the Holy Spirit. I mean, I think most men would have gone absolutely nuts at a story like that. 
But Joseph did not. He wanted to honor God. He didn't want to shame Mary. And so he contemplated these things in his heart. He, he thought them over and he decided that he would divorce her quietly. He, he wasn't going to shame the one whom he loved. And he took time to think about it. And verse 20 tells us, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, wait a minute, I thought Joseph was the son of Jacob. Didn't we just read that in the genealogy? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel appeared to him in a dream. Joseph's a man who has dreams. We read that about him in the gospel accounts when he wasn't sure when God wanted to speak to him, God would speak to him via dreams. And when the angel appeared to him, he did not call him Joseph, son of Jacob. He called him Joseph, son of David. What was the angel speaking to? He was speaking to the messianic expectation that Joseph was carrying in his own heart. A desire for a coming king who would save his people. And when he heard those words, son of David, I think that Joseph was reminded that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And, and he was told that which is conceived in Mary is from the Lord. This is a, the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise to David and to Israel. And Joseph, who knew the scriptures, realized what was going on. And you just have to think, Man, the man's heart must have been so filled with fear in the midst of all that was going on. Not only must Mary's heart have been filled with fear, but Joseph's heart must have been filled with fear. And the, but the angel confirmed, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Whew. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus means Savior. Uh, Jehovah saves. The Lord our salvation. The Hebrew version of that name is Yeshua. The Greek is Jesus. The Hebrew is Yeshua. In English, the right translation is actually Joshua. But we say Jesus. You know, it's, if you think about it, it's probably one of the most common names, you know, around the year 2000 in Israel. A common birth name, to be named Joshua. But that was the, his human name, the name he was given. Jesus Christ, we read here. He will, he will be called Jesus, and, and we're told here he's the Christ. Christ is not his human name. It's an official name. It's a, it's a title. Christos is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means anointed, God's anointed. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, kings were all anointed as they were placed into their office. They were anointed with oil. And what we see here is we see this name Jesus given to him in this title Christ, that he is Jesus, the prophet who came to declare the word of God. He is Jesus, our faithful high priest, as it says in Hebrews. He is Jesus, the King of Kings. He is prophet, he is priest, he is king, he is God's anointed. You know, when I think about the name Christ, I, there's something about Christ. I just find it mysterious. I don't know if that's like me, but I'm like, it's weird. It's like, I can't, I know it means God's anointed, but it's, it's hard to grasp hold of everything that is in in that word, there's so much depth to that title, and it's a title that only belongs to Jesus. Nobody else in the history of the world has ever been given the title Christ, God's anointed. For he will save his people from their sins. You remember when Moses led the people of Israel to the promised land? Out of slavery, they wandered through the desert. And they came to the boundary of the promised land and the Lord said to Moses, you will go no further. 
So Moses was led to Mount Nebo. Going to be there in a couple months. Going to stand in this spot. Haven't been there before. I'm excited to go there. Going to go to Mount Nebo. And Moses was led to this spot. And from the, the height of Mount Nebo, he got to look over the promised land into the land of Israel. But he was not able to enter the promised land. You remember who it was that succeeded Moses? Joshua. Moses represented the law. And as a representative of the law, he could not lead the people into the land of promise. Because the responsibility of leading the people into the land of promise was given to Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, the same name. It's Jesus who leads his people into the land of promise. Law cannot bring people into the fullness of God's blessing. The law was given and provided to prepare us to a certain point uh, to point out to the fact to us that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. In need of a Savior who could save us from our sins and bring us to the land of promise, the life of promise. You know, Philippians 3 verse 9 says this, that we be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We enter into the life of promise through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by the law. He is our Joshua, our Yeshua, our Jesus. Verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew connects this whole story, this birth narrative, to a prophecy 700 years earlier from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 7. And he reminds us of another name that is given to Jesus. He shall be called Emmanuel which means God with us. I mean, there's a mystery right there. That's part of the mystery of Christ's birth. You know, when you read the Gospels and when you read about Jesus, you, you'll never read actually that anyone called him Emmanuel. No one called him by that name. It, it was his, the announcement at his birth But no one called him by that name Emmanuel. But we do understand. And those that follow Jesus understand that he is Emmanuel. God with us. He he can't be Emmanuel, God with us, unless he was born of a virgin. That's the only way. And if you think about it, he can't be Jesus, the Savior, unless he is Emmanuel. It all hinges on the fact that he is God with us. And that is the reason why he is called Emmanuel. You think about Jesus. His existence did not begin at his birth. As he taught before Abraham, I am. He always existed eternally. But born of a virgin womb, he clothed himself, he veiled himself in human flesh that he might save us from our sins. You shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He had to be born of a woman, but he couldn't be born of the seed of a man. Otherwise, he'd be part of the genealogy of Adam. He is Jesus, the God-man, the unique union of these two natures. I, I don't know how it works. Don't ask me to teach it. The divine and the human. Perfectly God as well as perfectly man. And if we move from him being perfectly man, it's error. And if we move from him being perfectly God, it's error. And if we move to either one of those, it's a false Jesus who cannot save you from your sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin womb. And it's through Jesus that those who desire salvation can draw near to God. Can draw near to the Father with boldness. Can have access to the Father with confidence in Jesus Christ. 
He's Jesus, Savior, Christ, God's anointed, Emmanuel, God with us. You know, when we get to heaven, I wonder, will we call him Jesus? I actually don't think we will. That's a human name. I think we'll ascribe to Jesus the name that he had before he clothed himself in flesh. You know, Jeremiah actually talks about that in Jeremiah chapter 33. He talks about the righteous branch and how God will save his people. And in that day, some translations kind of apply it to the city of Jerusalem, but it it should be applied to the Lord. They will call him Jehovah Sidkenu, which says, the Lord our righteousness. You know, I think the day comes when we stand before Jesus that we won't say Jesus, we'll say, you're my righteousness. You're the Lord, my righteousness. You saved me. You're Jehovah Sidkenu. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph, Mary, and they went on happily ever after. It's a good story. But they waited to consummate their marriage until after the birth of Jesus. And the scripture tells us that they went on and they had lots of kids. Jude and um, James were two of their sons. They had boys. They had girls. The gospels say that. Mary, Mary did not remain in some perpetual state. She went on and she was a mother of many children and they had a family. And God blessed them. And You know, I would say this. This birth account tells us that there is something unique about this king. The genealogy tells us something. that There is something unique about this man that's going to be introduced to us in the Gospel of Matthew. There is something unique about his genealogy and there is something unique about his birth. There is something unique about his ancestry and there is something unique about his advent because he is the king of kings the Lord of Lords, and as he was named, he is Jesus who saves people from their sins. This morning, let's, let's pray, you guys. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come.